Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. This podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Associate Executive Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. On today's show, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Michael Blackwell, the former dean at the University of Tennessee, among many, many other titles he has held. Um, and so we're going to talk a bit tonight about his illustrious career, um, as well as um, some of the work that he's doing now on access to veterinary medical care. So, welcome to Diversity and Inclusion, Dr. Blackwell. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate right. the opportunity. Great. Thanks so much. So, um, as we get started on the show tonight, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Did you always know that you wanted to be a veterinarian? <laughs> How'd all that work? <laughs> well, I... Uh, I came by it earnestly. My dad actually uh, was a practicing veterinarian at the time I was born. And so I, I was born and reared in the profession of veterinary medicine. I don't know that I had an opportunity to look elsewhere, but I was the only one of four children to follow in his footsteps. Um, so this, this thing about taking care of animals, but then more importantly, the larger society, is uh, really in my blood. It's been there, as I said, from birth, it appears. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma. He had a mixed animal practice, and um, I became quite uh, experienced in working cattle and being run over by cattle, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> Very physical work, uh, which is probably why I don't do that, that type of practice today. <laughs> But uh, at an early age, I came to appreciate uh, what it means to give back to society in, in meaningful ways. And uh, an interesting uh, aside, uh, well, not actually aside, given uh, your program, uh, you know, back when he was in practice, uh, there was uh, segregation uh, throughout the South, especially, and of course, Oklahoma, not quite in the South, but quite conservative state. And uh, during those days, there were a lot of uh, black-owned businesses. But most of those businesses uh, had black patrons. Um, you know, we had pretty much thriving black communities where you could find pretty much all you needed uh, as far as professional services. Um, my dad's business stood out in that most of his clientele were white. and. Uh, Therein is what helped to shape me for how I have uh, practiced and uh, as a professional. Uh, I didn't quite get the memo about uh, being black, meaning that uh, you were not patronized by whites. Uh, I, in fact, learned just the opposite growing up. Um, so uh, interesting background, and it certainly set me off on a, a very good course uh, which uh, which is responsible for the successes I've had in my career. All right. 
So you are a graduate of Tuskegee. Did you go there for undergrad as well? I did. Uh, I, uh, I attended Tuskegee right out of uh, high school. And, uh, of course, uh, my dad attended Tuskegee. He was in their second veterinary oh, wow. uh, graduate class. And I, I actually ended up being the first second-generation graduate of Tuskegee School of Veterinary Medicine. How cool is that? That's pretty awesome. So, so um, for our viewers that don't know, uh, Dr. Blackwell went on to have an amazing career with the Public Health Service. Did you go straight to the Public Health Service um, from Tuskegee, or kind of what happened in the in you know in there? Yes, uh, you know we never know where we'll end up. I I always assumed that I would uh, leave veterinary college and and go back to Oklahoma and practice. And that's actually what I did. But it took no more than about two years before I started to realize that God was calling me to a much higher uh, purpose in life. I didn't know what that meant. But um, what ended up happening was I left Oklahoma, left that practice, and uh, joined the Food and Drug Administration, which really started me on a 23-year career with the federal government. Um, I uh, continued to practice, however, in the Washington, D.C. area, but um, first as a, as a relief veterinarian and then on to uh, start a second practice in uh, Silver, Silver Spring, Maryland. But uh, yes, I, I uh, didn't know I would end up doing the, the work that I ended up doing. So tell us a bit about that work. So. Um, yes. Most folks know you from that work, so tell us a little bit about that career. 23 years is a long time. Yes, it, 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 uh, it was uh, very rewarding work, especially uh, the, the years with the Food and Drug Administration, um, 20 of the 23 years uh, was with the FDA. And I came to appreciate all that goes into ensuring a healthy society. Uh, I came to appreciate what it means to ensure the well-being of humans by focusing on animals. So a lot of that work involved the approval of drugs that are used, of course, in medical treatment of diseases in animals or to prevent diseases. But appreciating, in the case of food animals, uh, the need to ensure that there would not be residues and in the meat, once people consumed uh, the meat, uh, that it would be safe. Uh, such a rewarding period. Uh, but also during my uh, years with FDA, I, I continued to be active in organized uh, veterinary medicine and organized efforts to ensure that veterinarians were part of the conversation. Now, that led to me uh, taking on an advisory role uh, with Surgeon Generals from C. Everett Coop all the way through to David Satcher, uh, and eventually uh, as the Chief of Staff for the Office of the Surgeon General under David Satcher. Wow. Nothing Very quite good. like my dad's practice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long way from getting trampled, I'm guessing, or maybe yes. <laughs> Well, not because I got trampled by some other animals called humans. <laughs> so after you uh, left the public health service, you found your way to University of Tennessee, um, yes. and uh, you were the first um, 
minority dean outside of Tuskegee at um, one of the U.S. colleges, which was a, a pretty big deal when that happened. We now have um, far more diversity amongst, um, in terms of um, race as well as gender among um, the college deans. But um, how did you end up in academia? Well, I do appreciate the question because uh, at the time I was approached by the University of Tennessee uh, regarding that position, I was chief of staff for the Office of the Surgeon General, a very high-level position and a very meaningful position. Uh, however, the, the reach out from, Tus from Tennessee occurred while we were very heavily involved in bioterrorism training for the nation. Uh, preparedness. This is pre-9-11 and uh, the, the intelligence co community was clear that this country would likely be attacked within five years. This is 1999. Uh, so quite important work. Um, it was uh, however a bit challenging to get the veterinary colleges to um, at least in speaking with deans, to accept the important role that veterinary schools had in training future veterinarians in this new world of where, uh, excuse me, zoonotic agents uh, were more likely to be used as weapons. And so I'd been lecturing all across the country on those issues and in including a few times to deans. Well, um, when Tennessee reached out to me, uh, it was uh, an opportunity to step in and do something that it seemed that other schools were not willing to do, and that was to focus more heavily on public health. That was the professional reason I uh, accepted their, uh, their offer. But there was a personal reason, and a very important personal reason. Uh, at the time I was uh, considering uh, this potential change, it was year 2000, and as long as veterinary medicine had been around and as long as Tuskegee in particular had been training black veterinarians, we still had never had a black veterinarian as dean of a majority uh, school. And, um, and that was year two, the year 2000. So here I was sitting with a school asking me to take that position. I mean, they literally recruited me into it. And I felt an obligation at that point for Tuskegee and for black veterinarians in general, uh, because my thinking was once the first one was uh, appointed and, and of course was successful in that appointment, then we would likely see others follow. Um, and that's what happened. I'm not saying it was solely because I became a dean at t t Tennessee, but uh, yes, Tuskegee now owns the privilege of being able to say, we train the veterinarian who became the first black veterinarian of a majority veterinary school. I did not want that honor to go to a majority institution, frankly, though that belonged to Tuskegee. So that's how I ended up becoming a dean, uh, very unexpectedly. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, Tuskegee actually has the honor of, of uh, educating, I guess, four sitting deans, uh, well, yes. three sitting deans right now, um, yes. including um, the first African-American woman dean at Tuskegee, Dr. Perry. So yes. um, breaking barriers all over the place. So um, so how long did you serve at Tennessee? 
I uh, served for seven and a half years as dean, uh, and it was then time to to move on. Uh, I didn't grow up to become a dean, and um, I accomplished a number of things that I set out to accomplish in going into that position, and so seven and a half years uh, seemed like enough at, at that point. So what kinds of goals did you have? Well, uh, first of all, as I, I just mentioned, I, I wanted to refocus a veterinary teaching program, veterinary educational program, uh, more heavily on public health. Um, this meant uh, working to achieve a working relationship with the uh, College of, uh, of uh, Education and in particular Department of Public Health. Uh, and so first and foremost, we were able to start offering the Master of Public Health degree to DBM students. This was a joint uh, effort. It wasn't quite your traditional dual degree program, but I must say after 9-11, other veterinary colleges got the memo and started to, to focus as well, which we were happy to see. At the time I started that effort, there were only three schools offering students the opportunity to focus on both public health while working towards their DVM degree. Now I think about half the schools at least are making such opportunities available. So that was accomplished, but I also wanted to start uh, what is now known as veterinary social work. Uh, it, it turns out that uh, while practicing in, in Maryland, another contrast with my dad's practice, you know, the little pets weren't like the pets I grew up with. They had human status, it seemed, or something beyond just a dog, just a cat. And in that practice, I came to not only appreciate, but even at times struggle with the mental health uh, aspect of pet ownership at the time of illnesses or injuries. Now we had traditionally as a profession focused on uh, uh, grieving at the time of euthanasia or expected euthanasia or, or loss of a pet. But I was seeing depression as well as anxiety, which all veterinarians had been seeing. And I thought that, first of all, we as a profession were not equipped to address the needs of our client. Uh, we, we, we really had our plates full, but we could invite other professionals, paraprofessionals to the table. Uh, and in this case, uh, after some study and many conversations, I came to appreciate the social work profession was more ideally suited to the spectrum of what we see as, as veterinarians, not psychology, but social work. Working in the, uh, with the public in Maryland and realizing the uh, movement in the human-animal bond, that there were people who could literally get very uh, depressed and, and, uh, and or anxious uh, when uh, the family pet became injured or, or ill. And I thought that it wasn't sufficient as a veterinarian to just keep my head down toward the pet on the table and pretend that this grieving family or this, this family with emotional challenges was not in the room. Uh, rather than saying that this was something we as a profession had a responsibility for addressing, 
directly, uh, I felt that uh, we should reach out to an allied profession uh, and invite that profession to the table. Uh, after uh, some research into that, I concluded that the the social work profession, given its mission, was best suited to work along with the profession of veterinary medicine to treat the whole family. Mm. Um, we, uh, of course, know now that uh, you know pets are often a reflection of the health of the family, and furthermore, if the family is dysfunctional or unhealthy, uh, even including medically, then I have a very limited ability to even help my patient, that is the animal that's a part of that family. So in coming to Tennessee, within weeks of, of uh, arriving as dean, I had already met with the dean of the College of Social Work and, uh, and others. And of course, within a matter of uh, the first year, we had launched the veterinary social work program at Tennessee. Um, and that program continues to grow. It uh, now has uh, two social workers on full-time staff at the uh, Veterinary College. Uh, and, and their role is not only helping the, uh, the clients of, of the Veterinary Teaching Hospital, but our faculty and staff and, and students. In other words, this, this business of pet care is a very emotional business. And we can't possibly get it right if we ignore the emotions uh, in, in the equation, starting with the humans, uh, but also the animals who often mirror what's going on with the humans. So veterinary social work was, was uh, a plan that, that I take great pride in, in having uh, fulfilled or completed during my tenure as dean. So, um, yeah, and that, that field, um, that subset field is really, really growing. I do a lot of work myself with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Strand, um, and uh, she's a delight to work with. Um, and I know that a number of schools now have um, veterinary social yes. workers um, not only serving um, their um, clients uh, and um, their grief and anxiety and, and those things, but also students as and faculty as well. And yes, yeah. And one of the things it's it's interesting. Um, it's only been in the last few years or so that we've really, really started openly hearing discussions about the impact of even having to perform euthanasia on yes. um, animals and the impact that that has on professionals and um, yes. that it is, um, you know, the compassion fatigue and really kind of yes. understanding um, the, the, the challenges around that. So absolutely. Uh, the profession, um, the profession really has stepped up its efforts to address wellness. Mm -hmm. uh, and wellness today means a lot more than the traditional days of uh, maybe alcoholism or drug abuse or something. It, it really does, uh, the, the, these programs really do attempt to get at uh, compassion, fatigue, and, and other related uh, issues in this emotional business. Uh, however, uh, we continue to see the suicide rate in this profession climb, and, and that tells me we are not where we need to be yet. Uh, and so we, we need to continue to focus on 
working with other professionals in order to ensure our own well-being so that we then in turn can uh, can do an effective job with the animals that we're seeking to help. Sure. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Well, uh, I, I'm really excited about um, uh, a project that that we have going. It's, it's referred to the Access to Veterinary Care uh, project. Uh, we now have a coalition, uh, a diverse group of professionals, yourself included, and thank you very much for agreeing to to work with uh, with the coalition and and represent veterinary colleges, uh, but a diverse group of professionals who have um, who care about uh, the fact that we have this huge population of animals that really don't have access to veterinary care. Now, why is it that they don't have access? Well, much of that mirrors what we see in human medicine and, and access to health care for humans. Although we don't have an Affordable Care Act in veterinary medicine, <laughs> what we do know is that poor families uh, love their pets at least as much, and some would argue in many cases more than families who have the means to acquire other uh, uh, discretionary items in their lives. And, uh, and it's very sad that these loving pets are in a family where they can't go down the street to a private practitioner and get private health care. Uh, and so uh, we as a group of professionals are, are working to figure out ways to better ensure that these pets have access to veterinary care, maybe not on the same level as the upper middle class and wealthy, but certainly enough to uh, address unnecessary uh, suffering when they when they get ill or if they're injured uh, again being able to offer an option other than euthanasia now I came to appreciate this problem uh, as I worked in the shelter industry so while Dean of the Veterinary College I, I accepted the, the role of chairing the board for the young Williams Animal uh, Center which is uh, a regional shelter here in East Tennessee. Uh, average intake at that time was about 19,000 animals per year. Um, that uh, was finally reduced to where we are today to about 15,000. But what this means is about 500, I'm sorry, about uh, 30 animals are taken in each day into a facility where uh, you can only admit a hold about 500 at max. Mm. Many of those animals that were being relinquished by families were poor families who did not have the means to take care of the pet. It was obvious the pet was ill or injured and they didn't necessarily have to be turned in by a neighbor who said they weren't taking care of it. They had come to an appreciation. And so uh, I have seen many of those animals end up euthanized because of lack of access to health care. Now, in my mind, that is not an acceptable situation, especially in a country with the resources of the United States of America. We just needed to start focusing on this group of, of uh, pet-owning uh, uh, folks 
much like we have so focused on those who have the credit card in our pocket and can come in and purchase the services. Uh, well, uh, at this point now, we've identified that at least 23 million pets are in homes that are at or below poverty uh, as established, uh, the level is established by, by the federal government. It is clear to all that these folks are not acquiring veterinary services from uh, private veterinary practices. But then we add to that what we've seen since the Great Recession of 2008, where increasingly middle-class families were falling out of that class and into the poor class, or they were still in the middle class but struggling. For example, uh, we often hear people refer to the fact that it's been many, many years since the average household income has actually increased. So there have been stagnant wages. There's a debate about minimum wage, and we know about families where you have someone working full time and yet they need food stamps just to feed the kids. Uh, and so uh, this is truly an American story that we're talking about. This is this issue with the pets not having access to health care is just another facet of the inequities that exist within the United States of America, where you have the haves and the have nots. So I, um, while I grew up uh, and most of my career came to appreciate what it means to provide services for the haves, uh, in my later professional life came to appreciate, well, what about the have nots? Uh, don't we care about them? Do, are, do those animals also deserve an opportunity to be healthy and happy? Let me just say, some of my colleagues have, uh, have stated uh, that they believe uh, if a person can't financially support a pet, you know, take care of the pet, afford veterinary care, that they shouldn't have the pet. And that is probably a very good philosophical uh, debate to be had. But right now the building is on fire and, and it's not time to debate whether uh, there should have been a different kind of fire alarm system or whatever. Right now we need to address the fire and the fire is these animals are in the homes. And it turns out many of these families probably shouldn't be having children in the minds of some folks, but they have them. And, and, uh, and so the coalition is intended to uh, look at this uh, crisis in a very focused way. We have four committees, by the way, uh, as a way to sort of divide uh, this, uh, this effort, uh, one being methods. We want to come to appreciate best practices out there, you know, across the country, both from the private sector as well as from nonprofit veterinary uh, practices. We, we know that there have been efforts and will continue to be efforts to provide these services. We want to learn what appear to be the most effective ways to do that, given the limited resources available. So our methods committee will, will compile such information, and out of that we will, will be able to share with the broader veterinary community and animal pet care or pet owning community what those are. Uh, we have a legislative committee, uh, a very important committee, because under the circumstances with this um, post-recession 
post-Great Recession era where the economy has not rebounded. Many private practices are struggling. Uh, veterinary uh, cost of the to educate a veterinarian, of course, continue to go up, and so cost of getting educated, the cost of delivering those services have all continued to increase. Yet, the pool of people who can walk in with the credit card or the cash in their pocket to pay for those services has remained stagnant, if not is actually actually shrinking. And so uh, some veterinarians have chosen to seek legislative remedies and this is quite alarming because some of these efforts have been extreme uh, in many respects, in including wanting to pass laws that would not allow the nonprofits to do more than give vaccinations, do the spay and neutering and deworming at the time the pet is seen. But after that, uh, not be allowed to provide care. Uh, the argument being that they don't want to lose their clients to, to the nonprofits. Well, um, I don't think that a legislative solution like that is really in the best interest of any. And so rather than see these kind of efforts, we hope that the legislative committee will uh, understand where laws, new laws may be helpful, but more uh, to the point, characterizing why laws are not the answer, new laws mm -hmm. are not the answer. We have uh, a collaborations committee, this uh, group, uh, now, this is in addition to a methods committee, a legislative committee, now to the third of four committees, which would be our collaborations committee. Uh, they will be working to improve uh, the conversation, really. So improve uh, the conditions under which both the for-profit and non-profit veterinary communities can have a conversation around this lack of access for certain animals. And I think out of that, what we will come to appreciate is those struggling private practices really uh, uh, are looking at the wrong uh, place when they uh, charge the shelters with the reason for them struggling. Mm -hmm. uh, we will uh, start to hear one, each side will hopefully through the collaborative efforts start to understand what the concerns are coming from the various camps and how to communicate into a better position of understanding for all. The fourth and, and uh, final of the four committees would be, of course, our communications committee. And there, uh, that group will help to shepherd uh, an initial public announcement about the existence of the coalition, uh, but then also foster continual updates in the form of presentations that will be done in various fora. Uh, around the issue of access to care and ultimately help uh, with the writing of a report of the veterinary, I'm sorry, a report of the Access to Veterinary Care Coalition. I'm hoping that that will be, uh, that report will be out uh, anywhere from 12 to, to 18 months from now. All right. So now I know what my work time frame is. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you know, uh, yes, uh, we are fortunate. The coalition is fortunate to have some very effective uh, professionals, including yourself, serve as members. And in order to 
access that expertise, um, the Humane Society of Veterinary Medical Association and, in fact, the Humane Society of the United States are committed to providing whatever staff support and other resources that uh, will be needed for the coalition to do its work. So an independent coalition, but getting assistance support, from sure. the most effective animal protection organization in the country. All right. Um, for uh, listeners of this podcast, if you're interested in, in uh, knowing who more about, I guess, this uh, this group and um, an example and, and about, you know, some programming that one member on the group is doing, the first podcast um, that we hosted that launched Diversity and Inclusion on Air features um, William um, Gillis. Um, who runs the WISCARE program at University of Wisconsin, which is a joint endeavor with uh, the College of Veterinary Medicine and um, the School of Social Work there. So um, you can find that certainly on YouTube or on iTunes or Stitcher. So um, there's my shameless plug for the first episode of this show. <laughs> well, I, well, I think it, it is very telling uh, with respect to the relevance of, of what you're doing. Uh, you, you're, you're really targeting some very key, very pressing social issues in this country. Sure. Uh, and, and this, and knowing you, I know you will appreciate this. This gets back to why diversity is a much bigger word than whether they're, rather than just white-black relationships. <laughs> it, it really uh, is a broad term, and I appreciate your your uh, your appreciation for that and, and the fact Thank you're you. addressing some of these issues. Thank you. Um, certainly, yeah, diversity is so much more than just color or even gender, and so um, this podcast is really kind of devoted to exploring lots of different different kinds of issues. So um, I have a question, a couple of questions for you um, um, about the, the access to care and kind of um, issues around um, animals not being able to be seen. So um, certainly in human health, we, cert we hear a lot about health disparities. Do we see those kinds of things as well kind of present in... Um, um, I mean, you know, when we're talking about um, poverty, poverty didn't, does tend to overlay geography, race, yes. class, all kinds of things. And so do we also see, um, I guess, a higher incidence of certain types of um, illnesses, um, chronic yes. or acute, and, and pets as well? Yes, absolutely we do. There is a clear um, disparity in health among the animals when we uh, superimpose the socioeconomic uh, hmm. uh, status of the families with the pets. Uh, I often say to my colleagues, you know, when you have uh, largely a middle-class clientele uh, that is fairly well educated uh, and appreciate the need for preventive care and have the means to come in every year and get the shots or every year to get the testing done. And even getting into senior care and, you know, these things that are intended to keep the pet healthy. Uh, when, when you look at that population, you see a stark contrast in the health of those pets compared to those in homes where they never see a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you can appreciate this. Some families pray to God that 
the problem will get fixed because they can't just get up and run to the vet. And, and of course, when God hasn't answered that prayer and the animal is in a more urgent situation, then they go in. But even in those circumstances, many of them are, are searching for where they can go in to address it. Yeah. Spend a week in a shelter and I'm one that, that is as active as uh, Young Williams Animal Center here in Knoxville. And yes, you will see out of those homes a range, a spectrum of problems that hardly ever are seen in a practice that's uh, with, a, with a middle class, upper middle class clientele. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, and I don't think that people realize just how... Um, uh, pervasive some of these issues are when we talk about class we talk about where people are able to live um, yes. and kind of what those neighborhoods look like whether or not they even have sidewalks yes. <laughs> you know whether or not you can walk your animal um, whether or not there's a dog park <laughs> you know and most yes. dog parks you you can't walk to them you'd still need to get in a car and go take your dog to the dog park and um, and all of those are um, unfortunately markers of some level of affluence that yes. um, many people just don't have access to for whatever yes. reason. And um, if there aren't sidewalks, people don't walk. And if they don't walk, they're certainly not walking their dog. That's, that's, that's absolutely correct. And of course, let's, let's take something even as common as, as heartworm disease, uh, disease that is uh, spread by mosquitoes. Uh, Families with the means and, and the education will go in and acquire heartworm preventative medication, and the pet never never has heartworm disease. But if when you go down in the socioeconomic uh, ladder, on the socioeconomic ladder, uh, you don't see uh, efforts to prevent the heartworm disease because of economics. And so uh, something as treatable or preventable as heartworm disease starts to show up in greater frequency from that population, uh, but but yes, you, 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 your your neighborhood, the contrast in the neighborhood of a low socioeconomic community compared to upper middle class or middle class in particular, uh, would be found with the animals on so many levels for mm -hmm. reasons that that can be very illogical and understandable. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so this sounds like a really big project um, that uh, we'll be working on. <laughs> yes, it is. And what, may I just uh, point out one other thing that, sure. um, you know, I, I have uh, heard some people over the years, and this is when we're talking about human health in particular, uh, who live in the suburbs, in a gated community, whatever, it's easy to believe that the problems happening in a pure poor community as far as diseases is not their issue and they have no reason to be concerned about it. It doesn't affect them. But the truth of the matter is an unhealthy community anywhere presents a threat to all communities because diseases are mobile. And uh, if the upper crust goes to the same malls and other mixing bowls, if you would, as those of the lower socioeconomic status, then you need to care about whether they're a healthy group of people. And the same applies to the animals. Uh, it is not good for public health, for public safety, to have 
a growing population of animals without adequate access to health care because they do present new threats to to the broader community. All right. Wow. Um, yeah, I hadn't even uh, kind of gotten to that that piece about public health and why we have Purell dispensers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, so what's next for you? I mean, it sounds like this will probably occupy a good portion of your time. What other role do you serve at um, HSUS? Well, um, I'm the, of course, Chief, Chief Veterinary Officer. And um, I wanted to uh, join HSUS because it is the largest, uh, most uh, effective animal protection organization in the country. And, uh, the, but the relationship between the HSUS and many veterinarians is not healthy. And to me, that's not healthy for the animals when the veterinary profession doesn't have a good collaborative relationship with, with animal protection organizations. And so I want to see bridges built where our profession, the veterinary profession, gains a better appreciation for the work of animal protection organizations. It's too easy to point to the crazy person who does maybe unethical and even illegal things to make a point about whatever they believe in. But most folks involved in animal protection, animal welfare work are not crazies. They care about something that is very important and in fact have the same goals as the veterinary profession. That is the well-being of the animals uh, in a healthy society. And so my work uh, cuts across the spectrum from food animal uh, protection issues to companion animal wildlife, uh, research animal uh, issues. And essentially I'm trying to add a veterinarian's perspective to these issues. So therefore a lot of my work is actually targeting the folks within the Humane Society of the United States uh, in helping to understand uh, why something may look the way it looks. And while it might not look uh, humane, uh, you know, we can drill down and understand what it actually means. And I'll give you an example. Uh, working cattle uh, involves a lot of prodding and coercion uh, to get them to move from one place to another. These animals are not always signed up to cooperate. And for <laughs> the untrained eye, uh, procedures used in, in livestock uh, management can appear uh, inhumane. Now, oftentimes a person is applying the lenses of a companion animal like a dog or cat. And you say, well, I wouldn't do that with my dog. But cows are not dogs. And uh, unfortunately, they are food animals and are big animals that um, <laughs> you have to handle in ways that are different. So I'm trying to, to add that perspective. Uh, and it's important work, in my opinion. I'm happy to be doing it. So you're still an educator and you're doing diversity work. Yes, ma'am, I am. <laughs> and, I, and I have to thank you uh, among a few other people who keep me honest and, and informed about the importance of these issues. 
Sure. We've, we've had some offline conversations about um, diversity um, within animal protection and just within the larger um, veterinary community um, regarding animal protection. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that the folks often forget that we all really want the same thing. Um, we all want the same the health thing. and well-being of animals. And, yeah. um, and there has to be some, some kind of... Um, um, common understandings of different kinds of things um, and different types of techniques and practices within the profession. So um, good luck to you on that. Well, I appreciate you helping uh, <laughs> and continuing to lead the way in the, in the many ways that you are because your, your work is noticed and appreciated. And um, I am happy to continue to collaborate with you uh, on diversity. Uh, as well as anything else. And, of course, you know I still have a heart for children. Uh, I ah. still see uh, some work with children uh, in my future. I don't know. I see animals and, and children much the same. They are quite dependent upon uh, human <laughs> adults um, for their well-being and their safety, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and often get victimized, not necessarily oh, yeah. through intentional acts, sure. but... Um, Absolutely. They they all need a voice. They very much they all need a voice. They do. Yeah. So I think that this is a great place um, to end. Any parting words for the veterinary community that are going to be watching this podcast and listening online? Uh, you know, I, I think what what strikes me is so important for the veterinary profession today to understand is there are multiple Americas. And uh, when we go to school and we train in state-of-the-art medicine and we leave school with the intent of practicing state-of-the-art state medicine uh, and medical procedures, uh, that's based on a foundation that appreciates one or two Americas, largely mm -hmm. the affluent, those with the ability to pay for such things. But with the change in demographics in this country, uh, where uh, Caucasians, white uh, Americans will constitute less than 50% of the population, probably by 2040, uh, we really do need to, to understand that minority communities are not white communities, and these cultural differences are not, it's not a matter of good or bad, uh, right or wrong, but they're different. And, it's important that we understand uh, better how to serve the, uh, the other Americas uh, in addition to the one that, uh, that has traditionally defined veterinary medicine. All right. Great. Thank you so much. So uh, if you are interested in um, hearing more, again, please do um, check out the first episode of um, Diversity and Inclusion on Air with Dr. William Gillis from the WhiskeyHairs program. I also wanted to make note um, that uh, May is Mental Health um, Awareness Month. So um, we, we've talked a bit about that as well today. So um, please take care of yourselves. Um, everybody needs to take care of themselves. Um, and I am very happy to uh, say that this episode has been produced by my student uh, production intern, uh, Mr. Arturo Munez. 
um, and I asked him to make sure I pronounced that right, so I hope I did not butcher that. <laughs> he has been great in the background. Um, please do join us next month um, for the next couple of episodes of Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Um, I'll be doing a two-part series on holistic admissions um, featuring um, Kim Dubru from the uh, American Dental Education Association as well as um, a second podcast um, featuring um, several of our member institutions and some of the things that they've done to move closer to um, implementing holistic admissions processes at their institutions. So with that, I will <laughs> I will uh, close out this episode. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you, see you next time.